This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Nathan Heffel. It's down to the wire at the state capitol for legislation that has any hope of passing. There are just three weeks left in the session. But Governor John Hickenlooper hasn't given up on his top priority, a move he says would free up money for transportation and schools. We talked about it with him in our regular conversation at his office, but we got to a lot more first. His role as a Democratic superdelegate, a huge global trade deal, and the expansion of I-70 through Denver. He spoke with Ryan Warner. Governor, welcome back to the program. Glad to be back. Senator Bernie Sanders picked up more delegates than expected at last weekend's Democratic State Convention. He has a clear majority of support among Democrats here. You made clear to us that your support as a superdelegate is for Hillary Clinton and that it's firm. But our listeners noticed a contradiction in how you answered my questions last month. So first, you said you're against the potential transfer of Guantanamo detainees to southern Colorado because local residents didn't want the prisoners there. Uh, Let's roll tape. You have to recognize, you know, public sentiment matters. And yet on the issue of your vote as a superdelegate and your support for Secretary Clinton, you had this to say. It's intended that folks like myself who got elected, that we should use our judgment. And that our judgment, I think it was accepted that, that our judgment might differ from the, uh, the voice of the, you know, the larger electorate. Two different issues, and it seems to me two different perspectives on the role that public sentiment should play in your decision-making. Can you elaborate on what you think the difference is there? Sure, because um, there are two completely different issues, as you rightfully point out. I mean, it's get back to Lincoln, right? With public sentiment, nothing can fail. Without public sentiment, nothing can succeed. So in something like whether you're going to bring in a different type of prisoner into a prison that's in a local community, that's a situation where public sentiment plays a very large role. And why shouldn't it in the choosing of the, the highest leader in the well, land? Well, I, think it sh- I, I don't say it shouldn't. And certainly part of my job is to look at not just who goes to a caucus system, but all the, the different people in the state of Colorado that are involved in, in the primary And I'm not convinced that if we'd had an election, that Senator Sanders would have won. And and we don't know that because we don't. That's why I've been lobbying why we should have an election to know what what, what public sentiment really is. Having a primary versus the caucus system. Yeah, the caucus. I mean, how many people, what, 10 percent of the registered Democrats showed up? That's not a large enough representation to tell me that I should go against what my instincts are. I look at at someone you're going to vote for, who's going to be the best president, And I certainly admire Senator Sanders on so many levels. I mean, he has been out there speaking his mind on issues for a long time. But being president is more than just having the right opinion on an issue. Let me parse apart the thinking just a little bit more, because what you said is that you don't think the caucuses were a true reflection of the Democratic electorate because so few of them are able to participate as a percentage. But that is an assertion that public sentiment then does matter, because if you got a fuller picture, you say, you what, you might support Senator Sanders if you knew more of Colorado to be in support of him? What I said is that public sentiment always matters. doesn't mean it's a determining characteristic in all events, but certainly in a prison where you're looking at bringing people into a community which would create jobs. So I would assume in that situation that you've got a natural self-interest in, in Canyon City or in, in Florissant that people would be inclined to welcome those prisoners because it's going to create jobs in their community, helps all the businesses. When contrary to that, actually, the people are dead set against those prisoners coming into the system. 
so it's, it's actually economically going to hurt their community, I think that, that magnifies the impact of public sentiment. That's very different than, than who you're going to vote for uh, in, a, in a, a primary election. I want to say that Democratic participation was 11% in the caucuses. That was pretty close. So speaking of the, the systems here, caucuses versus primaries, you are on the record uh, supporting a move back to a primary system in Colorado. The state used to have one, and away from caucuses. This could happen a number of ways. There's likely to be a bill on this subject here at the tail end of session. Uh, there could be a ballot question this November. But if neither effort succeeds and Colorado sticks with its caucus system, do you think there's anything the state can or should do to require the parties to handle the caucuses better, differently, and to avoid shutting people out of what proved to be, for many, a confusing process? Well, I was at the caucus for our precinct, and it was, it was bedlam. I mean, it was, there were so many more people there than the space could accommodate, although I don't hold the organizers necessarily responsible because I don't think anyone imagined. I mean, this was record numbers of people turning out. Why wouldn't you hold responsible the, the Democratic Party for the bedlam? Well, because I'm, you know, you guys, in the, media, Democrats. You guys in the media always want to have everyone accountable. And, and Yes, and, 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 voters and, and, often and, do and, as well. Exactly. They do tend in that direction. When turnout or, or, or any kind of an event is so far beyond what is expected, I am sympathetic to having tried to put on these kinds of places of gathering or, 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 you know, convening large groups of people, I cut them a little slack. I don't think that you can always be prepared for everything without spending a lot of money. First, I think the party could, could lean into and have elections, because I think that is a solution that really does validate each person's participation. Many of the people that were at this caucus, I mean, two or three people said to me, so there must have been at least a dozen that said, I'm never going to come back to this. I just it was so much time and so much effort to stand around for three hours. Right now, the parties absorb the majority of the cost for these caucuses. If the state transfers to a primary, it may be the state that picks it up. Are you prepared to put money behind that? Well, Does- I, th- I think to have more people involved in the, in the primary system, and, and actually, I think it pays for itself if we were one of the early states, which is what people are talking about, uh, both in the Republican and the Democratic side, just that notoriety, uh, there'd be, a, I think, a significant economic impact and, and some compensation for, for the state spending money. But yes, even without that, I think it's a, a worthy expense for the state to get more people involved in democracy. Moving the primary forward is a separate question and uh, requires... A lot of negotiating with the parties. Uh, one of the wait, hot- wait, wait, wait. We could also we could do a, a primary election and do a caucus as well. People who wanted to could still go and caucus. A hybrid system. You could. One of the hot issues on the presidential campaign trail is free trade, and this week NPR and CPR are taking a closer look at international trade with a project called A Nation Engaged. Uh, The U.S. is negotiating two major trade deals, one involving European countries and the other involving Asian and Latin American countries. That one's called the Trans-Pacific Partnership, or TPP. You are on the record supporting it. It would lower or eliminate tariffs and regulatory barriers between the U.S. and 11 other countries. Uh, In short, why do you support that deal? I think, and I understand the the arguments against it, and I'm in, in many ways sympathetic, but I I looked long-term, the growth of, of trade has almost always meant more prosperity to both sides. Now, 
Are we in, in a situation now where that increased wealth, at least on our side, is being concentrated in, in the pockets of too few people? That may be the case, but I'm not sure the solution is to create trade barriers. I am hopeful. I think part of the challenge we have is to do a better job of training individuals who their industries have changed and, and they've lost out in one way or another. Do you think that didn't happen enough under NAFTA, for instance? Yes, I, th- I think we did a, a very poor job of retraining people who lo- whose industries had left. And it's not just manufacturing. They're all, I mean, call centers were outsourced. One report shows that Colorado lost 15,000 manufacturing jobs since NAFTA. Some of those, I should say, are because of increased productivity, but economists attribute some to increased competition from abroad. But again, 15,000 out of whatever our total number of jobs, I can't remember, it's two and a half million or something like that. But you seem to suggest that trade deals could potentially distribute wealth unevenly. I'm saying that business sometimes distributes wealth unevenly. Capitalism sometimes distributes wealth unevenly. But you need businesses growing to create jobs. And the next step then is to say, all right, now we're creating those jobs. How do we make sure displaced workers get the right training so they can get a better job? We've We've seen people getting displaced end up with lower paying jobs, worse jobs. And yet, I mean, at this very moment in Colorado, we've got over 20,000 job openings that can't be filled for people. These are high-paying jobs, and you don't have to be writing code for the Internet. A lot of them you can get in a six-month or a nine-month training package. You can go and, and get hired for a job that pays 60000 a year, and yet we haven't reached out to those people who have been displaced and gotten them into that training. You call for robust retraining. The federal program that does this is Trade Adjustment Assistance, And our reporting shows that it retrains a small number of people who lose their jobs to trade, and it basically puts someone on unemployment for two years while they get retrained with the hope of getting a higher-paying job when they get out of school. Uh, Risky, particularly uh, for older workers. Where do you see the economic opportunities, the growth opportunities uh, for Colorado specifically in in the TPP? Well, Who, Who stands to benefit the most in your mind? Certainly agriculture is a big winner in TPP. We've seen a number of places where uh, beef, pork, wheat exports would increase dramatically. Uh, Software, uh, cyber security. If you look at some of the things that, that, that we export, so aerospace. Aerospace is no longer just sending satellites or, or sending rocket ships to the, into space. It's GPS. It's all the technology that's associated with that, much of which is concentrated in Colorado. That's all stuff that we could be exporting more of to Asia, to South America. Let me pick up on the issue of beef in particular, uh, because it's often cited as a potential beneficiary of this trade deal in Colorado. Not everyone thinks that an increase in beef exports is a good thing. (laughs) We talked with the founder and CEO of a Denver business called Maxfields, which makes potting soil and planting mix for urban farmers and gardeners. They're an environmentally oriented business, according to John Paul Maxfield, who is a lifelong Coloradan. I think industrial agriculture, particularly industrial animal agriculture, is one of the most devastating practices and contributors to global warming. And the Trans-Pacific Partnership sort of spreads that movement to developing nations. Critics point to emissions from livestock and their manure, uh, the energy that goes into feeding cattle, for instance, growing crops to feed them. And in addition to global warming, Maxfield is concerned about biodiversity and health issues that can come from eating a lot of red meat. 
Is the bottom line the only consideration in supporting a trade deal like the TPP? No, but I think you have to flesh out all those arguments on both sides. Now, does, does Maxfield grow? He doesn't grow beef or, or, or pork or any, any meat. He, he doesn't, but he's certainly involved in agriculture and has sure. a view toward what makes it sustainable. Sure. And, and so we've had that argument out there for a long period of time, and it's a relatively few number of people that want to get all their protein from vegetables. I don't think he's saying everyone has to become vegetarian. It's just that he's saying beef doesn't have to proliferate. Well, but I think the world is going to want more beef, um, pork, more, more types of, of protein that come from meat. Do, are you concerned about meat and climate change? Is that a nexus that you give any thought to? Well, I certainly look at the when you're growing beef and, and the exhalation uh, of one sort or another that puts climate change gases uh, back in the system is of concern. But have you ever seen the, the Beano, the, the things that allow your digestive system to uh, not burp and fart so much? The, is that, I guess that's not appropriate for public radio. You can radio. say that. No, no, that's fine. But anyway... You, but the, anyway, the, the, you're saying that the answer is the, to... Beano on, on a large scale for when you're raising beef allows them not to uh, emit so much methane. Uh, and there are a number of people that are looking at a additive to uh, some of the meal and the foodstuffs that are, are fed to beef that would dramatically diminish that uh, exhalation, if I can be so blunt. It's the, well, that's actually the more delicate way of putting it, I think. Have you paid attention to other environmental protections that this deal requires, and do you think they're sufficient? Yeah, I think, and it's not just environmental protections, it's uh, labor protections and making sure that, that people aren't um, using slave labor or, or unfairly taking advantage of workforces in, in some of these other countries. But most of those issues, not all, but most of them are already, uh, you know, the, the, the people that we should be very concerned about how they treat their workers or how much degradation happens because, or pollution is released because of their activities. This, in almost every way, brings limits to them. Maybe now some people argue not enough, but it's beginning to manage and limit a system that previously has not been regulated and has had almost no limits on it. Uh, Mr. Maxfield also told us that his business could suffer. He says agribusiness giants like Cargill and Monsanto lobbied heavily for the Trans-Pacific Partnership, and they're considered some of the deal's biggest winners. And he worries that that leaves out small producers like those that buy his products. Protecting small-scale producers and that method of production is going to be a critical aspect of producing food to feed populations in a way that jives with the natural environment. Well, I, and I certainly agree with him there 100%. I think. In what regard? That, that well, we, we've been working on you know, farm to table and trying to get small producers higher prices. And one way to get higher prices, I mean, if, you, if there's a larger market for what you're producing, generally that leads to increased prices. I mean, that's part of Keynesian economics. So higher prices should benefit the smaller producers, right? And if we continue doing what we're doing, so we have Always Buy Colorado. We're trying to work with Safeway and Walmart and King Supers to buy their cantaloupe, buy, buy everything we can. We're trying to get them to buy from Colorado because it makes sense sustainably. You don't have to ship food all across the continent. But it also uh, helps those small producers actually make a living, you're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner, and we're at the state capitol for our regular conversation with Governor John Hickenlooper. 
Uh, honing in specifically on Metro Denver now, I-70 is slated to grow by four lanes in North Denver. The project will bury part of the highway under a new landscaped cover, which the State Department of Transportation says will reunite neighborhoods divided when the highway was built. Uh, but some neighborhood groups and advocates don't like it. Uh, some homes are slated for demolition. Other homeowners worry about noise and air pollution during construction. I want to get you on the record. Has CDOT chosen the right approach with this? So I think that this is one of those issues, and it dates back to before I was governor. When I was still mayor, we were looking at alternatives and what would be the real cost. And I think we somehow have moved away from getting back to what the facts were. What maybe is needed is to have a one-day charrette, and, and let's get everyone involved. A charrette is like a workshop. A workshop, right. In, 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 in can can I get you on the record first? Do you like CDOT's approach? Well, in terms of the, the approach, I think the solution is probably the right solution. I spoke yesterday at City Club, and one of the questions was on this very issue. And, you know, it struck me that maybe I don't have what well, my facts might be out of date. There might be new facts that the people that are against the solution have come up with. Usually when people get so conflicted and, and there's an adversarial you know, conflict between two sides, it's often a good idea to sit down and, and first thing, let's revisit what the real facts are. And let's, let's debate the facts before we get into policy. So the, the fact is they would like to bury I-70 and put a so, lid on so, but, it. So, do you well, like that approach? So how much does it cost? What, is there, if you do the alternative up to the north, how much would that cost? It seems like a question for you to answer as exactly. the chief state executive. So how, how much does it cost? Is it worth the no, money? No, 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 no. You're, you're, you're the media. You're coming out and telling me to take a side. Uh, do well, we I'm have asking to, you to take a position on something your agency is doing and will spend millions of dollars doing. So, so my point is that there are a bunch of different costs that come from this, depending on how, how much traffic's already there, which people disagree on. At the, at the lunch yesterday, people had no common idea of how congested that northern route already is. You're going to have to use eminent domain and take large swaths of land from private landowners. So, what, so what, is your, what is your basic understanding of the facts? Give us the top line, and do you sure. like CDOT's approach? Sure. So my, my sense is that this process, and it's gone on so long, that's why I think it would be good to go back and revisit, make sure none of these facts have changed, but that the northern alternative would require so much additional land to be acquired and not only would you have a longer route, but you would end up having a dramatic increase in cost and really not solve congestion the way you would if, if you had the existing system. And this is the idea of rerouting traffic potentially to 270 and I-76. Yes. Uh, we should be trying to diminish pollution by having more transit. But you also, when you just have too little space, you end up with so much traffic that's just bumping along that's when you get the worst pollution, right? You mentioned transit. I just want to ask really briefly, there are those who think don't spend millions on this behemoth project of I-70. What could that money do for transit, especially when there is lots of evidence that the more lanes you build, the more traffic in the long run you add? Right. So in terms of the, the region's transportation, certainly a large part of what I-70 takes is freight that doesn't fit on the rail components. In the present incarnation, those trucks, which is a big part of the congestion, are kind of stuck there. If, Do if, you think that there would be benefits specifically to freight in adding lanes, but that that can't be done in a vacuum, that there has to be some transit along with it 
with the idea of moving individuals a different way. And I think let's look at Metro Denver, how much money Metro Denver is spending on transit uh, versus road construction, lane additions, and then compare that to our peer cities. And I think by any measure, you'll see that we're spending more on transit relative to, to road construction than almost any of those cities. Is it enough? We should revisit that. I'm not saying, again, that's why let's sit down and have that discussion again and look at what is the next phase of transit. Before we go, I want to revisit your top legislative priority, and that's reclassifying something called the hospital provider fee. Uh, hospitals pay the fee and draw down matching funds from the federal government. It has allowed the state to expand Medicaid. Lawmakers have just a few weeks left to do this reclassification. It looks increasingly unlikely that the Republican-controlled Senate would vote on this, even if it passes the democratically controlled House. So I wonder, are you still committed to getting this change made through the legislature, or is it something that you'll be forced to take to voters? I am still committed to getting the hospital provider fee reclassified as a fee. In the legislative session? In this legislative session. Is there anything that's changed that makes you think that in in the final stretch it can happen? There's nothing changed that makes me think that it won't happen. We've heard a lot from Republicans that implies it's a non-starter. So negotiations continue? You're meeting with... the, The discussions are going on between the Senate and the House, and they're trying to resolve differences and figure out a way to you know, end up in a place that both sides can live with. This is one of those things where no one is going to end up happy, I don't think. Again, I'm not going to wade in there because I think it's, I think the discussions that are going on right now are at a pretty advanced stage and they don't need me opining, here's what you should be doing or here's where you should end up. Some people are going to be pissed off on both sides. So be it. We, we, we move forward. That's how, that's how progress works. Thank you, Governor. Always a pleasure. Democratic Governor John Hickenlooper in his regular conversation with Ryan Warner. Still to come, how the shooting at Columbine High School 17 years ago today drove one man to opioid addiction. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Nathan Heffel. For many survivors of the Columbine High School shootings, today's date, April 20th, brings back painful memories. 17 years ago, two students opened fire at the school. They killed 12 students and a teacher before killing themselves. For Austin Eubanks, who was shot in the hand and the knee that day, it marked the start of his descent into opioid addiction. Eubanks is now the program director at The Foundry, a substance abuse treatment center in Steamboat Springs, and he's determined to do his part to fight what he sees as an opioid epidemic in this country. Austin, welcome to the program. Good morning, Nathan. You were in the library at Columbine High School on April 20th, 1999. That's where most of the victims were killed or injured, and you were a junior. Uh, Tell us what happened to you. Uh, Just like any other day at high school, just a normal junior, uh, went into the library to meet friends for lunch, and before he knew it, it was total chaos. Um, And I ended up walking out of the library, injured myself, and, and after watching my best friend murdered. After you were shot, you were prescribed drugs for the pain, right? Correct. What ones did they describe? Uh, I was initially prescribed Vicodin, and I I remember having multiple doctors prescribing multiple substances, um, and none of which were in collaboration with one another. And really, um, when I look back on that experience, I was basically having 
gone from never uh, using alcohol or illicit substances to being an active addiction three months later. So separate doctors prescribing separate drugs and not really talking to each other about which ones they were giving you. Correct. So almost immediately after, I learned to manage the emotional pain that I was dealing with with substances that weren't prescribed for that. Did they ever question the number of prescriptions that you were getting? Never. No, I was never questioned. And it almost seemed like – and I learned very quickly that with this story, I could kind of bend doctors to my will. And so I definitely learned a a manipulative strategy. But um, I was never questioned about the substances. It was almost like doctors were just trained to diagnose, prescribe, diagnose, prescribe. How quickly uh, after, after being on these drugs did you realize that you were becoming addicted? Uh, it took some time because the stigma of of uh, prescription medication is I, I, I was attached to that false core belief that my name is on this bottle, so I need these substances. I need these in order to be successful. I need these in order to manage the symptoms that I'm feeling. And even though I'm not taking them for the symptoms in which they're prescribed, they're making me better and they're making me more effective. So it took many, many years for me to break down that stigma and actually find lasting recovery. And so during this time, you were looking at this bottle, your name was on it. You were feeling better or were you not feeling feeling better and continued to use these drugs? Well, I was feeling better because I wasn't having to feel at all. And that's really that's really the core of it, is I was learning how to manage everything and effectively turn myself into a robot with uh, benzodiazepines, amphetamines, and opiate pain medication. So as time ran went on, the, the drugs obviously that you received after the shooting r- ran out. How did you continue to get your hand on these drugs? So I would always continue to find doctors, manipulate doctors, and kind of bend them to my will. And then I also turned to illicit substances as well. So I was abusing alcohol. And whenever I couldn't use prescription medication, I was abusing drugs like cocaine and uh, MDMA and things of that regard. So really anything to take myself out of just feeling So it really was this mental anguish that you were feeling as well. Oh, absolutely. And I remember looking back on it and really having to go and when I found lasting recovery at age 29, having to process emotions that I should have processed at age 18. And so really having to go back and address the trauma and and work on that to process it to really find lasting recovery. So what was it about the drugs themselves that gave such a, a powerful hold by them on you? Well, ultimately, when you use opiate medication for long enough, you become dependent upon it. Mm. So with opiates, I couldn't live my day-to-day life without them. I would wake up sick. I couldn't work. I couldn't do anything. And so um, I had to live my life day-to-day based upon whether or not I had access to opiates. And if I didn't, I wasn't functional at all. So there was really, um, I couldn't see any way out. Were you going through this on your own? Did others recognize what was happening to you in your addiction to these drugs? Yeah, absolutely. So obviously my my parents very early on and they were the first to encourage me to seek help. Um, And then, you know, friends and and pretty much everybody caught on eventually because just like with everything pertaining to addiction, it gets worse with time. And so as I progressed through my 20s, um, my behavior worsened and the symptoms worsened and everybody, it was pretty clear. So at this time, were you getting, uh, for lack of a better word, mental help to deal with what had happened at Columbine in conjunction with with what was going on? Were you hiding this drug addiction? Uh, Yes, I definitely did my best to attempt to hide it. Um, I remember I was definitely had access to services after Columbine, but I remember the feedback that I was given and my parents were given was that he's just shut down. We can't reach him. We're not sure why he's not able to process this. And the real reason behind that was because I was medicated. So how did you finally get help? You, you recovered now. Yes. Yeah, so fortunately. How, how did you finally find your way out of that, that addiction? So really, it, it took um, a willingness on my part to uh, do whatever it takes. And so um, I had four attempts at rehabilitation. And finally, uh, at age 29, um, I realized that I couldn't keep going 
uh, under living my life under the circumstances that I had been. And so I went into treatment on for the fourth time and really with a willingness to do whatever it takes. And so I sat down and I said, tell me how to walk, tell me how to talk, and I will do it. Just tell me how to get out of this. And I did that for long enough where it really um, – it changed the way my brain was functioning and it restored my brain function to where I could really um, have long-term behavioral change. Did you stay in school during this time or were you in and out of school? Uh, no, I, I was not. I, I didn't go uh, back to school actually after departing Columbine. Um, I elected to forego college and actually go into an internship um, just because of my aversion to going back into a scholastic environment. Right. You now run a program for addicts in Steamboat Springs, and President Obama and others in his administration view the opioid problem in the country as an epidemic. Uh, Overdose deaths from opioid abuse have quadrupled in this state since 2002. What are you seeing at the center that you work at? So it really is an epidemic. And and when I look at the population that we treat at the foundry, I would say close to 75% come in with an opiate addiction. And the story that you hear is so repetitive. I would say of those that come in with an opiate addiction, it's primarily heroin. And well over half of those started with prescription medication that was either prescribed to them, prescribed to a friend, or prescribed to a parent that they had access to. So what about uh, – you talk about the heroin. Uh, how prevalent is that? Is it still a huge issue there? It's everywhere. everywhere. It's absolutely everywhere. And it's in communities that you wouldn't have seen it in 10 years ago. So it's in it's in high schools. Um, I've even heard reports that it's accessible even in middle schools in certain communities. And so really it is an epidemic and it's something that we're going to have to find the way out of. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Nathan Heffel. I'm speaking to Austin Eubanks. He was shot in the hand and the knee during Columbine 17 years ago. Today, he now uh, works in opioid addiction uh, for the center called The Foundry in Steamboat Springs. Um, Austin, because of your closeness to this to this addiction and your um, time at Columbine, do the people that you work with have, a, have an affinity to be with you, to want to learn more from you, how you recovered from these addictions? I, I think so. I, I've been told that. And so part of the reason why I'm here today is just to share my story and in the hopes that somebody will um, find that spark to seek help for themselves. And so I think that having walked that life and found a way out, um, that being able to impart that knowledge on how I did it to others is a pretty valuable thing. So talk, let's talk about the doctors. You were saying earlier that, that the doctors were prescribing these drugs and they weren't talking to each other. Uh, the CDC has offered guidelines to doctors prescribing opioids to suggest pain relievers like ibuprofen maybe before going to stronger drugs. Do doctors need in your eyes uh, to adjust their approach to painkillers? Uh, I think so. I think doctors need to adjust their approach to everything as it pertains to addiction. And so the CDC guidelines are definitely going to help. Um, prescription databases are going to help. However, I think the real problem lies in not adequately training doctors about addiction. And really, doctors are, are trained to diagnose and prescribe, diagnose and prescribe. And oftentimes, the solution, as it was in my case, is to diagnose and not prescribe. How so? Well, I think that in, in my case, had I, had I not had access to medication and, and eventually turned to illicit substances, I would have been more accessible in a therapeutic environment. And I could have gone through the stages of grief earlier in life as opposed to really numbing myself for a decade and then having to go through that. 
you know, returning to today, uh, which is the anniversary of Columbine, do, is is there a fear from you that, that maybe you will relapse sometime in, in this sense? Because you're still dealing with this, I'm assuming. Absolutely. I think anybody in recovery will always admit that there's a healthy fear, you know, and, and you have to admit that, you know, for me, I, I abstinence is the only way. And I understand that if I go back to substances, that downward spiral is, is going to happen again. And I tell clients that I work with that I learned every way that doesn't work. And I really tried every avenue. Um, and so, you know, hopefully they can learn from my experiences. Do you know if other students that were there on that day have become addicted to, to drugs? I'm not aware of that. I, I've asked that question often. So it's definitely something I plan to look into. What else would you do to tamp down on this opioid addiction around the country? Well, really, I think it's a two-part solution. And, and I, I alluded to it earlier when I talked about adequately training doctors about addiction and, and really finding a way out of the epidemic from the front end. But however, we have a mess to clean up now. We have a, a, a whole um, population of addicted individuals. And so I think finding the way out of that is focusing treatment philosophies on empowerment. And for me, that was really, really important is having somebody lay out a map for me to create a better life for myself and really get me to that one year mark of continuous sobriety, because that's when the brain is functioning differently. And so that's really the approach that we take at the foundry is creating a roadmap for somebody to get to that one year point. And they stay inpatient with us for nine days. And then most of our clients transition to a extended care program that will give them some level of accountability up until they achieve a year of sobriety. And that really gives them a firm foundation for lasting success. And does that happen around the country? No, it doesn't. So historically, the standard for inpatient treatment is 28 days. Mm -hmm. And I speak from experience in saying that that is absolutely not enough. 28 days you're just scratching the surface and getting started. And so when people come into treatment, you're hopeful that they have a willingness to really stay engaged because it takes a long time because we're talking about enacting behavioral change and it takes a long time to do that. So how do you take what you're doing at your center and, and, and spread that across the country if it's not happening? Well, I think part of what we're doing today, you know, it's really creating an awareness in the public that um, the stigmas around addiction and the ancient philosophies of how we're going to treat addiction don't work. And we're in an epidemic right now, and we have to find a way out. Austin, thanks for being here. Thank you so much, Nathan. Austin Eubanks was shot twice during the Columbine shooting 17 years ago on April 20th, 1999. He's now the program director at The Foundry, a substance abuse treatment center in Steamboat Springs. Still to come, a massive traffic project in Glenwood Springs causes headaches for locals and for tourists. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. You're back with Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Nathan Heffel. The Western Slope's largest highway construction project in 25 years is in full swing, and it's creating massive traffic headaches. The project in the heart of Glenwood Springs will replace the outdated Grand Avenue Bridge, linking Interstate 70 with Grand Avenue and Highway 82. And it's quite the challenge for state highway officials, since roughly 28,000 drivers, many of them tourists, cross the bridge daily. Joining me now via phone is the project's spokesman, Tom Newland. He's with the Colorado Department of Transportation. Welcome to the program. Hi, Nathan. Thank you. Tom, will you give us some history on the Grand Avenue Bridge and tell us why this huge project was necessary? Sure. So the existing bridge across the Roaring Fork River was constructed in 1953. And at that time, it was uh, a two-lane facility, one in each direction with two sidewalks on either side. Uh, now, with the uh, popularity of Aspen and the Upper Valley ski areas, um, CDOT had to add two lanes to that existing bridge and basically take the sidewalks out back in the 1960s. 
Um, the bridge itself is on the bad bridge list <laughs> with the state, so it is eligible for funding through uh, the Faster Bridge Replacement Program. And that's uh, how we're proceeding with this new construction. I've also heard some vehicle drivers also have a hard time staying in the narrow lanes as you've expanded the, the, the lanes there. It's also a headache for emergency vehicles. And, and, and really, when there are accidents, it can create a, 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 quite a few traffic jams. That's very true, Nathan. Uh, the, the lanes are only 9 feet 4 inches wide, and a standard lane is 11 to 12 feet wide. So oftentimes you'll have trucks and buses taking up both lanes of traffic and in one direction and, um, you know, causing people to have to basically do one lane instead of two lane over the bridge. That's one of the several deficiencies that this bridge has. So how did CDOT work with the community then to lessen the pain of, of what really equates to kind of an open heart surgery for Glenwood Springs? The bridge goes right through downtown. Isn't this the second time an idea for a bridge replacement has been discussed? Yeah, uh, I think back around 2000, CDOT came to the Glenwood Springs community with a proposal to uh, improve the bridge and uh, didn't get favorable responses. The town was concerned about, of course, uh, the normal things. What is it going to do to uh, uh, the tourists as well as the people that commute through our town? Uh, so um, CDOT kind of... Uh, came back later on here in 2011 and actually had a funding source in place this time, too. So uh, we came in in 2011 and started working with the community uh, directly to try to develop a project that would fit within the context of the community but also provide uh, the needed improvements that CDOT wants. But still, not everyone is on board with the project. The group Citizens to Save Grand Avenue has argued a new Highway 82 bypass should be built rather than redoing the bridge. Was that a possible solution? Um, I'm afraid not. With this particular funding source, it was specifically um, for replacing or uh, upgrading uh, bad bridges. So we really couldn't do a congestion-solving project like a bypass. Now, that's not to say that a bypass couldn't happen in the future in Glenwood Springs, but uh, there isn't consensus right now on where that should go and how it should look. So that's an evolving process. Now, this project is more lengthy and costly than the express lane project that tied up traffic so badly around Idaho Springs last year. Many tourists and people going to the mountains remember that. Uh, The Glenwood construction began in January and will continue into 2018. Uh, And it's been, uh, at times, uh, quite hectic for drivers with traffic jams as long as 90 minutes. Why is this such a traffic snarling project? Well, I've got to kind of explain that to you. The uh, 90 minutes delay that we had a few weeks ago was really uh, a number of problems. We did have one of the lanes on the off-ramp closed at the uh, at 116 exit, but uh, there was also two accidents that occurred on either side of Glenwood Springs, and we had bad weather, and it was a school day. So a number of things came together to create that. What we're looking at is to close the bridge for just three months in the fall of 2017. And at that time, we'll have a detour in place to the next exit down the road, exit 114 in West Glenwood, which will get people through town. So is that going to alleviate the traffic concerns for you in that sense? Yes. uh, Well, it'll help. Now, (laughs) the problem is is that we're the the Midland uh, uh, detour is a two-lane facility, and, of course, Grand Avenue Bridge is a four-lane facility, so we are trying to um, put a lot of traffic into a a narrower system. So we will need the community's help in um, 
negotiating or managing that traffic during the rush hours on the detour. And but now, that's, Tom, in tw- that's in 2017 for a 95-day period. Now, Glenwood Springs Police Chief Terry Wilson is one of those who is facing these challenges of having this kind of traffic tie-up in the middle of his town. Uh, let's listen to a clip of him. It's always going to be challenging. Anyone that lives in or travels through or has been to Glenwood Springs knows that our Grand Avenue Bridge is a very prominent piece of our traffic infrastructure, and there's no way to go messing around with it, and especially not knocking it down and replacing it that isn't going to create some challenges. So right now, uh, you know, as the chief said, this is a prominent piece of downtown infrastructure. How are you lessening the logistical impacts right now? Well, right now, the bridge is still open to four lanes in traffic and will be uh, through uh uh, uh, the summer of 2017. So we still have access like we had before. Now we will have occasional lane closures, but we uh, set those during the uh, non-rush hours, if you will, uh, between 9 and 3 p.m. Um, that way we can not have impacts on the rush hours, which are significant. Um, and we also try to let people know in advance as much as possible what's happening. We have a weekly construction update that goes to uh, several hundred people via email and also on our Facebook page. So we're trying to get the word out proactively so people know uh, what they can do. Now, Glenwood Springs, Strawberry Days and Carbondale Mountains, uh, Mountain Fair are coming up. Aspen's a tourist are all year round. So is the Glenwood Hot Springs. Uh, can you give some visitors, maybe from the Front Range or people driving through, uh, some advice on navigating this construction project as we move into the summer months? Yes. Uh, well, like I say, it's pretty much business as normal. Um, you'll follow off of the main Glenwood exit and into town over the Grand Avenue Bridge until that closure date of uh, August of 2017. Um, at that point, you'll be directed with the detour down to the 114 exit and then come back up uh, the east on Midland Avenue. So I think, you know, as far as uh, visitors and tourists coming into our town, what really is business as usual, not only uh, from a business standpoint, but also from a travel standpoint. So when this all wraps up in 2018, uh, uh, can you describe the positive changes people will see in downtown Glenwood Springs? Because right now the traffic headaches may not seem to be uh, outweighing these positives for the future. That's right. The bridges, and by the way, this is a two-bridge project. We're building a vehicle bridge and a new pedestrian bridge. The bridges will be beautiful. Uh, The new vehicle bridge will have a direct connection to I-70, which will greatly improve access to downtown Glenwood as well as the Roaring Fork Valley. And the new pedestrian bridge will be wider, and its architecture will imitate the historic buildings on either side. This really is a legacy project that will make Glenwood Springs better and easier place to get to, both in your car and on foot. And it seems that the fears of this have been calmed somewhat by uh, Chief Wilson, uh, the, the changes going forward. Here's another clip of him. I think we've got a great team of folks that are working on mitigating those challenges, and one of the best things I see in our favor is the companies that have combined forces to do this project have been really good for us to work with. They listen when we talk to them about our concerns. They help us try to find solutions. So what about the businesses in the area? And and, and let's say CDOT does another project in another city. How can those uh, businesses and, and, and people living there uh, feel confident that they're going to be able to get around their town and not lose business and not lose tourism? Well, we've really tried to make an effort to work with the local business organizations and the businesses themselves to make make them aware of what the project entails and what they can do as far as uh, helping us get through this this project um, through to 2017. 
2018. Um, we've devoted a lot, and by we I mean CDOT and the City of Glenwood Springs has devoted a lot of resources to reducing the impacts of construction and also ensuring that open pedestrian access is available through the project area. So uh, we're doing our part on the front end, and we're hoping that uh, the businesses can also help with some promotional activities, perhaps through the chamber, to uh, help bring more business into town during the project. Tom, thanks for joining us. Oh, yes. Thank you. My pleasure. Tom Luland is the project of the public Rather, Tom Newland is the Project Public Information Officer for the Colorado Department of Transportation on the Grand Avenue Bridge Replacement Project. Newland will be helping the public navigate the Cone Zone in Glenwood Springs until the project is complete in 2018. Just ahead, how a can of spray paint can help someone with dementia. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Nathan Heffel. Dementia patients and street artists have come together to create a graffiti mural in the art district on Santa Fe Drive just outside downtown Denver. Sandra Coker is one of nine novices in a new program called Granny Does Graffiti. It's at the VSA Colorado Access Gallery in Denver. Coker is 79 and has early-stage Alzheimer's disease. It's her first time with graffiti, but she says she's painted, drawn, and knitted throughout her life. It's part of education of life. You try things, you see different things, you learn what is good, what is bad, what is bright, what is dark, and colors and art, you find it everywhere. Damon McLeese directs VSA Colorado. He says this program uses art to challenge stereotypes about street artists and people with dementia. Graffiti is about leaving your mark, letting people know that you're there. And if you're a person with Alzheimer's or dementia, that's something that's probably crossed your mind. We want to make sure we're remembered. Their graffiti mural will be on display at the VSA Colorado Access Gallery through May 6th. You can see photos and read more about Granny Does Graffiti at CPRnews.org. And do you have a story to share about a loved one with dementia? You can tell us on Facebook and Twitter. And finally today, Karen and Ryan Hover are the married duo behind Fort Collins band Sound of Series. They recorded three synth-pop albums as Candy Claws before venturing into ethereal space rock territory with their new group. Shortly before their trip to the South by Southwest Music Festival in Austin, Texas last month, they came by the CPR Performance Studio for a set that included this song, Dagger Only Run. I got it to stay 
Dagger, Only Run by Sound of Series. And that's our show for this Wednesday. Thanks to audio engineers Michael Hughes and Matt Hers, director Andrew Dukakis, producers Rachel Estabrook, Nancy Lawfulm, and Corey Jones. Our executive editor is Ryan Warner. I'm Nathan Heffel. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. <laughs>